Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. This morning we're diving back into our study through the book of Acts after taking just a a brief pause last week. We're going to be looking today at a study I've titled, When Godly People Disagree. When Godly People Disagree. Seems like a pertinent sort of message uh, for our current climate, doesn't it? And I didn't even have to make anything up. It's not even a clever name. There's a serious disagreement in our text this morning. Just becomes really uh, obvious to us uh, what this is all about. Uh, Our main text this morning is going to be Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. But just for a, a bit of context here, before we jump in, coming on the heels of the Gentile believers being troubled and unsettled by the false brethren that came to Syrian Antioch who told them, unless you're circumcised and you keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then the convening of the Jerusalem council and their conclusion regarding that matter and the letter that they sent back with Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas, which caused the the multitude of believers in Syrian Antioch, both Jews and Gentiles, to rejoice over the letter's encouragement. The the church there has been enjoying now a, a, a time of strengthening as the word of the Lord has been taught and preached to them. Instead of the church becoming divided, it became even further united together. And the fellowship between Jews and Gentiles became even sweeter and more established through the conclusion of the council. Instead of false doctrine prevailing and the gospel being twisted and countless generations of people being turned away from the Lord, the true gospel prevailed and was solidified. And great joy and peace and rest and confidence and encouragement was brought to those whose souls had been troubled and unsettled things that the gospel still does today as people turn in faith to Jesus Christ. And in that season of time where the Gentile believer souls had been ministered to and encouraged, now that the issue of their salvation being by grace through faith in Christ alone and not by Jesus plus something else has been decided and clarified, we're now going to find in verse 36 that Paul has this new ministry venture on his heart that he's going to share with Barnabas. And we see this getting into verse 36. So Acts chapter 15, verse 36 says, Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Again, in that season of strengthening, happening in the church at Syrian Antioch after many days. We're not told exactly how long that was, but there's a season of time seemingly of rest, of joy, of, of just the, the church being really excited and, and, and built up in the Lord after receiving that letter. Paul, who no doubt had been seeking the Lord and waiting upon the Lord, he, he has this idea that he now shares with Barnabas about this new ministry trip, a new missionary venture to to just go back. It wasn't even to a new area, it was to go back and, and visit the brethren in all the cities that they had already just preached the word of the Lord on their previous missionary journey with the goal of seeing how all the believers are doing. To kind of get the spiritual temperature, to to check on the the spiritual state of these believers. Not to just go, oh, you guys are doing good? Cool, see ya. You've been reading your Bibles? Cool, see ya. How's your prayer time been? Good, okay, bye. Like, they wanted to come and, and see, but then fortify, no doubt, at the same time, to come alongside and support, to, to maybe answer questions, to to really pour in even more to these newer believers. 
Paul's heart for the people who had been saved during their first missionary journey, wanting to visit them, to see them in person and see how they're doing, really showing great care for their spiritual state is such a great example for us. And knowing the opposition, the persecution these men had faced in these areas that Paul was now wanting to travel back through, it just further reinforces for us that their care for others was placed far above any desire for self-preservation. You know, I I think if self-preservation was at the heart of what Paul was about as a disciple of Jesus who discipled other peoples, I I, I think what Paul might have said to Barnabas was, hey, let's go back through every city that we had just been through, except for Lystra. You know the city that I was just stoned out and, and, and left for dead? Let's go through every city, but not that one. Let's ask them to meet us in another city. Let's tell them to to kind of meet us at a, a, at a midway point. Because I don't know about you, but that would be something in my mind. That would leave a mark. It left probably real marks on Paul's body, being having stones thrown at him until people thought that he was dead, meaning that they had done a pretty good job at stoning him. And yet Paul just, he just loved these people. He, did, he, he cared more about where they were at than what might happen to him. And, and again, it's just, these are, these are kind of reminders that I think a lot of us need often because when it comes to how we relate to other people and how we reach out to other people, that self-preservation aspect of things oftentimes gets in the way. It, it holds us back. It hinders the work of the gospel. It hinders the kind of ministry that the Lord would desire to do through our lives because we're thinking about us and how we look and how we feel and how others might see us or perceive us or how they might react to us instead of just going, but Jesus loves them and I'm gonna reach out to them and I'm gonna share the gospel with them and I'm gonna love them whether they love me back. And this is the kind of heart that Paul had. It's the kind of heart that Barnabas had. So Paul shares his heart with Barnabas and it seems that Barnabas is instantly on board with Paul's plan. The the problem, as we'll see in the following verses, would be in how the plan was carried out and specifically who would be a part of their ministry team as they went back out to minister to their brethren. So let's continue on in our account and read verse 37 through the first half of verse 39. Verse 37 says, Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. Before we talk about this sharp contention that caused them to part from each other, we see first in verse 37 that Paul's idea immediately caused Barnabas to decide in his mind that his cousin, we know it's his cousin from what we're told elsewhere in the New Testament, John Mark, needed to come along with them. The the same John Mark who ventured off with them back in chapter 13 but then after leaving Cyprus and getting to the mainland, had departed from them and returned home to Jerusalem. But this is definitely keeping in line with Barnabas's proven character and actions in the past. I mean, Barnabas was a guy who was geared in such a way where he was always looking for ways to encourage other believers. That's why he got the name Barnabas. It wasn't his actual birth name. His birth name was Joseph. But the early church nicknamed him Barnabas because that's what they saw of him. Barnabas means son of encouragement. What they saw about Barnabas was this dude is an incredible encourager. 
He was always looking for ways to encourage other believers. He was a guy who saw things in people that others might not see. Things that drove Barnabas to take a chance on Paul more than once, both when he vouched for Saul when the church in Jerusalem was afraid of him and would not receive him in chapter 9. And then when he searched for Saul and found him in Tarsus and brought him to Antioch to minister to the church there alongside of him in chapter 11. No one else was reaching out to Saul. They they didn't even want him. Three years after his conversion, when he came to Jerusalem, they're like, we're still not sure about him. We're afraid of him. I mean, we can't totally blame them. But had it not been for Barnabas and Barnabas' ministry and the heart of Barnabas and the character of Barnabas, Saul would never have been included in the early church. And then when they sent him back to Tarsus after all the trouble that kind of happened, I think they were content in letting Saul stay in Tarsus. Let's just, it's more peaceful when Saul's not around, they might have said. And yet Barnabas saw something in Saul, saw that God's hand was upon Saul's life. And he searched for him, and he finds him, and he brings him back with him, and he goes, hey, let's lead the church together. Let's minister to these people together. Where other Christians might see someone as a failure or having too much baggage or too much of a work in progress, Barnabas saw the bigger and deeper picture of what God could do in a person's life. And he wanted to be used by the Lord in seeing even those who others might disregard or reject find stability and be made firm spiritually. Find restoration and healing and growth spiritually and be caused to flourish and be fruitful in Christ and for Christ. I've said this in the past, but we need more Barnabases in the body of Christ. More sons and daughters of encouragement, those who see things in others that others might not see and who seek to come alongside and pour into and strengthen others in the body of Christ. Barnabas' determination to take Mark was no doubt rooted in a desire to see a, a restorative work take place in Mark's life. Him having another chance to be faithful and endure in the work of ministry after his departure the last time. You ever sense that the Lord gave you an opportunity and you didn't take it? You ever feel like, gosh, God gave me such a, a divine window and the, he, he presented this open door and, I, and, I, and I, maybe you felt like you failed? Well, that was Mark. And Barnabas' heart was, I want to I be used by the Lord and seeing Mark get that next chance to do things the right way. He had been unfaithful in the past. He could be faithful in the present. I think Mark, I think Barnabas believed that. God could do that sort of change in John Mark's life. But Barnabas' determination also seemed to bring an unwillingness to yield or, or see where Paul was coming from in his insistence that Mark not come along with them, which is, what we find in verse 38, where Barnabas was determined in his perspective about John Mark being taken with them, Paul was insistent in his own perspective that Mark not be taken with them because he had departed from them in Pamphylia and not continue with them in the work that the Holy Spirit has sent them out onto. And we saw that back in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. But I, I want us to notice that Paul doesn't insist that Mark was a failure who could never be used again. He doesn't insist that Mark was a terrible person who maybe even wasn't saved. No, he just insisted that he not come along with them because he had bailed on them the last time they took him with them. 
the disagreement wasn't about ministering to the new believers and new churches that were planted on their first missions venture because Paul and Barnabas both seemed united in that heart to want to do that. And the disagreement wasn't about where to go because Paul and Barnabas both seemed united on that too. The disagreement was about who to bring with them. And depending upon our own past experiences, our, our individual personalities and our own perspectives on this situation that we're reading about, it's likely that if I took a poll this morning, we would find that most of us disagree with each other about who was in the right here and who was in the wrong. We could have a disagreement about their disagreement. And if we let our pride rise up in that disagreement, we, we could get a little angry at somebody else in discussing the disagreement that we disagree upon. And isn't that interesting that even this morning, some of us are reading this and immediately we're going, wow, Barnabas, you really blew it. And some of us are reading this and go, wow, Paul, you really blew it. So who blew it? Well, we're never told, but let's keep reading. Look again at the progression of this disagreement because of their strong, unyielding perspectives in the first half of verse 39. Again, Barnabas was determined, Paul was insistent, and then in verse 39 it says, then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. That word contention in the Greek speaks of a a sharp disagreement, a state of intense emotional turmoil, especially in words. Literally, they had an intense argument. And that intense argument led them to parting, splitting, dividing from each other and going in different directions. A division now among two leaders in the early church who before this were inseparable. I mean, before this, all we saw was Paul and Barnabas together. We saw Paul, we saw Barnabas. We saw Barnabas, we saw Paul. These are two godly men at the center of this scene, but neither of them seem to be acting very godly in how they handled their disagreement as they had this intense, heated argument. But you know what this reminds us? That these two godly men who were used powerfully by the Lord in leading multitudes of people to a saving knowledge of Jesus, discipling multitudes of believers, planting churches, raising up leaders, were both still very much human and fallible and didn't always do or say or handle or respond to things in the right ways. These men who had been filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit in the past were not walking in the Spirit, in the present, in this situation, which is evident by the lack of the evidences of the fruit of the Spirit and how they responded to their disagreement with each other. The problem wasn't that they disagreed. The problem was how they handled the disagreement. You know, if they had both been listening to the Holy Spirit, they would have either been in agreement about what to do or they would have at least had a peaceable understanding that God was leading them in different directions and had plans to use them separately without there being this sharp contention in their disagreement. And I recently read a a really great blog post by Pastor Tim Brown from Calvary Chapel, Fremont, He actually came earlier this year and and shared with us here. Uh, Tim, Tim said this in one of his recent blog posts about division and divisiveness. He wrote this. He said, division just doesn't happen. It is the effect of a cause. What caused, what is causing division in the church? And it's more severe than just division we're experiencing 
It's a spirit of divisiveness. We're going through a season of divisiveness, which is being fueled, he says, by fragile egos. Division is separation due to disagreement. Divisiveness is separation accompanied by hostility and accusation and denunciation. A man in the church asked to speak with myself and the elders. He disagreed with some of the things I had written in my blog articles. He laid out his, his areas of disagreement with me and the elders and informed us that his disagreement cut so deep that he and his family were leaving the church. He went on to say, his disagreement resulted in division, in separation, but there was no divisiveness in what he did. There was no hostility, no accusation, no denunciation. His departure grieved me, but the way he departed reflected a level of, mature, reflected a level of maturity that didn't wound. Division, he says, is the result of different ideas and how significant those ideas are to a person. Divisiveness is the result of a fragile ego, a brittle personality. Division leaves a gap, whereas divisiveness leaves a wound. Division hurts, whereas divisiveness scars. So why do so many feel so righteous in wounding and scarring one another? His answer was fragile egos. I just thought, gosh, that's a, such a great explanation of what we're seeing in our day. In our day, there's, a, a, there's been a breakdown in how believers disagree with one another, an increasing inability to disagree peaceably, unable to disagree but still strive for unity, to disagree and not be easily offended in the disagreement, to handle those offenses rightly instead of, turning the, instead of then turning in that state of being offended and wanting to tear someone else down or cause strife or to gossip or to slander that person. All things that fall under the realm of being divisive, which is a sin. When it comes to preferences and opinions in our day, for some believers, their preferences, their opinions, their convictions have become a standard of righteousness or real Christianity that other believers are being measured by and must live up to. That if someone doesn't agree with them or isn't doing or not doing what they're doing or not doing, there's a condemning sort of judgment that's handed out and a separation that follows, and this is just this is just wrong. Guys, disagreements are going to happen. We're not always going to agree on everything, and that's okay. But what we have to be careful and prayerful about is that we handle disagreements in a Christ-like and Christ-honoring way, that we make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that, and that if there is some sort of division that takes place after doing everything possible to keep unity in spite of a disagreement, that we don't become divisive and end up creating even more damage. Paul and Barnabas disagreed. They divided. But as we're going to see as we move on, they weren't divisive in their division. Look again at verse 39. We're going to read through verse 41. Verse 39 again says, Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Now, at first reading, we might almost read it as if Barnabas took his ball and went home. Like, he's just wounded. I'm not going to play with you anymore. I'm going back home. I'm going back to Cyprus. That's where he's from. But understand, this move 
isn't a sign that Barnabas was trying to stick it to Paul, but actually is a sign of Barnabas's maturity and humility. Notice what doesn't happen here. Barnabas doesn't say, oh yeah, Paul? Well, let's see who the, who the Lord's hand is really upon. Let's see who's really right here in this situation. And then he takes Mark and, and goes through Syria and Cilicia at the same time as Paul and Silas in sort of a competitive way. I mean, that would have really been jacked up and very much divisive if, if that was the case. I mean, let's think about it. Barnabas, when the Holy Spirit first called Barnabas and Saul to the work of ministry, Barnabas was the one in the leading role. Barnabas could have just said, hey, you know what? God's used me to lead in the past too. God can use me there too. You go do your thing, we'll go do our thing, and let's see who God blesses. Isn't it interesting that a lot of times when there's some sort of weirdness in a pastoral team or in a leadership structure and, and somebody breaks off from that, that when a new church is started by a member who was disgruntled, that they're, they're not going somewhere else. Oftentimes it's, it's started in the same city. It started in the same area. The, the heart isn't, and I'm not saying that every situation means that that person was in the wrong. But what often happens is that someone's pride was hurt. And so in pride, they're responding by saying, well, God, God could use me too. God can do something through here too. We'll start something new. We'll do our own thing. And I'm thankful that Barnabas didn't do that. He doesn't start talking bad about Paul in his ministry. He doesn't gossip. He doesn't slander. There's no note or hint of any sort of divisive spirit in Barnabas at all as they split from each other. Instead, Barnabas takes Mark and he goes somewhere Paul was not planning on going. The island of Cyprus, Barnabas' home country, which had been their first stop on their missionary journey just a couple of years earlier, where they led the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus to faith in Jesus. I think in Mark doing this, he's going, you know what? The Lord bless you guys. You, you go to Syria and Cilicia Let's go see what God will do with us in Cyprus, Mark. Because if we remember, we're not ever told that there was these great moments of revival. We're not told that there was these great turnings in faith. What we do find was that there was one guy who made a decision for Jesus Christ, while another guy was satanically opposing them. And I think in Barnabas' heart, he's going, okay, Let's go. Let's go back. Let's go see what the Lord will do in Cyprus. But while Barnabas and Mark sailed off to Cyprus, we see in verse 40 that Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren in Antioch to the grace of God. Silas, also known as Silvanus, was likely a Hellenistic Jew who we know had Roman citizenship just like Paul. He was a leading man among the brethren in Jerusalem who was trusted by the church there. He was recognized as someone who was called by the Lord to a specific role in the early church as a prophet. He had already served faithfully in the Jerusalem church and been used by the Lord to exhort and strengthen the church in Syrian Antioch after helping deliver the letter from the council. And clearly he was willing and available for whatever the Lord wanted to do with his life, which is seen in how he accepted Paul's invite and went with him. They were commended by the brethren to the grace of God, not because Paul was viewed as the one in the right and Barnabas the one in the wrong, but because Paul and Silas were heading back through Syria 
and Cilicia with a letter from the council, a letter that would help establish the Gentile believers in those regions in the grace of God. Paul and Silas went through Syria and Cilicia to check on the spiritual state of the believers there, but also to make sure that all the intended recipients of the Jerusalem council's letter, which was not just for the Gentile brethren in Antioch, but also those throughout the rest of Syria and then also in Cilicia, as we're told in verse 23, that all of these believers would have the letter brought to them and shared with them. And as they did that, checking on the spiritual state of the believers where Paul and Barnabas had ministered last, sharing the council's letter with the Gentile believers in those regions, ministering to the believers in those regions, we see that the churches were strengthened. There's a strengthening result that came about both through the personal ministry and also through the collective decision of the Jerusalem council that came through that letter. We don't know how far these false brethren traveled into that region with their false message. It's very possible the reason why, why the Gentile, or I'm sorry, the Jerusalem council included Syria and Cilicia in their greetings was possibly because these false brethren traveled further in, farther west with that message that, you know what, that's great that you believed in Jesus, but that's not enough. You're not really saved unless you're keeping the law of Moses. That the destructive sort of influence of those false brethren could have been felt even much further away, even into Cilicia. And so Paul and Silas brought this letter so that these believers would, would have their hearts brought out of that place of being troubled and, and brought into a place of stability, a place of really embracing the grace of Jesus. Because when legalism gets lumped into our Christianity, our ability to embrace grace lessens. Because anytime we're focusing on what you're doing or how you're performing, it's, it's no longer about the grace of Jesus at all. It's about you. It's about what you can do and how you've been living and how you might be better than somebody else. Legalism has a quick route to self-righteousness where we start to look at somebody else and go, well, you're not doing what I do. I don't, I don't think you're really doing it right. Or you're not abstaining from what I'm abstaining. I don't think you're really doing this Christian thing right. Whereas grace rests in the finished work of the cross and is confident that the Holy Spirit of God is able to sanctify somebody else without your being the Holy Spirit in their life. You ever try to be the Holy Spirit in someone else's life? Oh man, it's frustrating. It's hard. It's hard to love somebody when you're trying to be the Holy Spirit in their life, isn't it? Because you're just, you're just thinking like, dude, when are you going to get your act together? Girl, when are you going to stop that? Or when are you going to start that? When are you going to be different? They were commended to the grace of God. I just love that. And these churches are strengthened as a result of this. I like what pastor and Bible commentator Tony Evans said about this whole situation. He said, notice how God used the conflict that arose between these two godly leaders. God took their disagreement then and used it to expand their gospel reach. In spite of their dispute, more ground would be covered and more lives transformed for Christ. Though Paul and Barnabas would part ways, in God's providence, their gospel impact would be doubled. He says, God knows how to take a mess and make a miracle. Oh, we praise God for that. I mean, when we look at this situation, we don't see any good on the surface of it. All we see is the division. All we focus is on the sharp contention. All we think about is how this could have been avoided. 
Guys, this could have been different. Barnabas, why did you have to determine? Paul, why did you have to insist? Why couldn't you guys have just listened and, and been in agreement in, in one way or the other? And though this isn't a, a sign of God's blessing upon the argument, God in his grace covered their mistakes. God in his grace took their failings and, and, and while there was one great team before, there's now two. Whereas there would have been a, a limit in their reach with just two, now there's four. You know, we're not told who was wrong or right in this situation. And clearly, Their sharp contention was not how the Lord would want them to handle their disagreement, but God in his grace, again, he's he's working in spite of both Paul and Barnabas' issues here, and he was going to use this to get his gospel out even more. You know, we'll, we'll never see Barnabas or John Mark again in the book of Acts. And some take that and go, see, they were in the wrong. That's why they're not included. But we have to understand that Peter was never mentioned again throughout the book of Acts either after verse 14 of this chapter. Not being mentioned doesn't mean that God was not using them. Just means that the focus of Luke's record keeping of what was happening in the early church focused on DePaul and stayed on Paul no matter who came or went in his life as part of his ministry team. Barnabas and John Mark aren't mentioned again, but God continued to use them. According to church tradition, not only did they continue to spread the gospel in the country of Cyprus, but the gospel from Cyprus went into North Africa, areas that Paul was not going to at that point in time. And though we don't have a specific record in scripture of Paul and Barnabas or Paul and John Mark reconciling, it's clear from some of Paul's writings that reconciliation did take place. No doubt that forgiveness was asked for and extended to each other and that fellowship was restored among these brothers. In fact, in the years after this, Paul spoke fondly and highly of both Barnabas and Mark in some of his writings, writing about Barnabas or Mark or both in 1 Corinthians 9, chapter 9, verse 6. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, and also in Philemon chapter 1, verse 24. And at the end of his life, shortly before his martyrdom, Paul, who in this account before us at this point in time did not want to take Mark because he had been unfaithful in the past in the work that they had been sent off to by the Spirit, he makes it clear at the end of his life that his perspective on Mark had changed. Check out what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. He says there, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Get Mark. You go and find Mark. Get Mark. Bring him with you. Why? Because he is useful for me, to me, for ministry. I just love this, that God had changed Paul's heart regarding Mark. Does God have access? Does he have our permission to change our minds about things and about people and situations? Sometimes we get so set and some way of thinking about someone that we never give them a chance to change. We don't ever give the Lord a chance to change that person or maybe change them in our eyes. Sometimes people change, but our perspective hasn't. And so nothing ever changes in the relation and the relational dynamic between us. And yet that wasn't true of Paul. Paul had a humble mind. He had a mind that was submitted 
to the spirit of God, he was able to have his mind changed, his perspective changed. Where years earlier, he was insistent that John Mark not come at the end of his life, he could say, bring him. I want him here. He is useful. Why was he useful now? Because Paul saw the change that had happened in John Mark's life. Barnabas took Mark to Cyprus, and knowing Barnabas, he poured into Mark. He encouraged him, he discipled him, and and growth and maturity took place. Mark is even associated with Peter. In 1 Peter 5.13, Peter mentions his son Mark, who was with him. And we know that this same Mark was the one who later wrote the gospel record, known as the gospel of Mark. And again, Paul, even after that, telling Timothy to get Mark and bring him with him because Paul saw great usefulness, saw Mark as a great help to him in ministry while he was in prison a final time. Even in this difficult personal conflict, God was working and bringing good. God was working on Paul, but he was also working on Barnabas. God was working on Paul, but he was also working on John Mark. Again, guys, disagreements are going to happen. Disagreeing on something doesn't mean that you have to divide over it. But in our day and in our culture, when you disagree nowadays, division seems to be the immediate next step. You don't agree, then you divide. You don't agree, then you move on. You don't agree, then you shut the person out of your life. You don't agree, then you start to trash talk them. (laughs) You don't agree, and then you start to gossip about them behind their back. You don't agree, and you start to slander them to other people. But that's not how Paul and Barnabas handled their disagreement. While the sharp contention was not a godly example, how they handled things after they parted ways was a godly example for us. Disagreements are going to happen, but we need to take great care in how we handle those disagreements. And clearly, we all need a lot of grace personally and need to show and extend a lot of grace relationally to others as we all seek to make our lives about Jesus and his kingdom and his gospel and his glory and not make it about us. Because that's what happens a lot of times in the disagreement. It just becomes about us. It becomes how we're offended. It becomes how we're affected. Instead of keeping our lives about Jesus, instead of keeping Jesus as the focus. And guys, as disagreements are abounding in this day, we have to be reminded that we have much more to agree on as brothers and sisters in Christ. 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 We have more things to unite around than we should have to divide on. (laughs) And just thinking about the example that Jesus left for us, man, the, the love and grace that Jesus extended relationally to his disciples throughout the gospel accounts should not leave us with any other thing than we really need to extend the agape love of Jesus and his grace to one another because there were so many times when we read through the gospel accounts that if we were Jesus, we would have just said, I don't want to hang out with you anymore. (laughs) Right? I don't want to share with you anymore. I don't want to eat a meal with you anymore. Please don't try to talk for me anymore. Don't minister in my name anymore, right? I mean, really, 
if we're honest, if we were Jesus, we would have handled relational things a lot differently. And yet Jesus just, he showed so much love and so much grace to people. Gave them chance after chance. I mean, even when Jesus rebuked Peter and called him Satan and told him to get behind him, that didn't end their relationship. It didn't cause Peter to no longer be a disciple. Jesus just kept pouring into him. We have so much to learn, so much to grow in, even now. I think if we're honest with ourselves, you know, maybe some questions to ask us in closing here. You know, have the, have the trials and troubles of the past year and a half, have they, have they hardened us or have they softened us? Well, you don't know, Jared. Look at the political landscape, Jared. Look at what's going on through this pandemic, Jared. Look at the economy, Jared. Stop. The question is, have the trials and troubles of the past year and a half hardened us or softened us? Do you and I really think that the the desire of God for each of us is that our hearts grow hard to other people? Hard to other believers, hard to unbelievers, demonizing unbelievers. You think any unbeliever is going to listen to anything that we have to say about Jesus when we are demonizing them? Not going to happen. Have this last year and a half's trials and troubles made us more critical of others or more compassionate toward others? Have we become more easily offended and quick to disagree and divide and be divisive? Or have we become more gracious and merciful and patient? Are we those peacemakers that Jesus in, John, or in Matthew chapter 5 said are blessed? Blessed are the peacemakers, he said. Who are we becoming as disciples of Jesus in a world full of lost people who Jesus has called us to reach with his love and his gospel. This world is changing, right? Not changing for the better. But as we see our world changing for the worse, are we changing for the worse as well? Or are we becoming more like Jesus? Are, are our lives being more consumed with the kingdom of God and the things of, of the Lord? Or, or is our treasure here? Is our hearts attached here? Are we living for the kingdoms of this world? You know, maybe a good question for some of us this morning is, are we harboring unforgiveness or bitterness? Have we let the offenses of others turn us into someone who feels we have the permission to offend others and be offensive and divisive in our approach to others? Because if so, repentance is needed today. You are in sin. I'm in sin if that's me. You know, maybe for some, you're just, you're carrying around hurts. You've been wounded by others disagreements, divisiveness, offenses that are abounding. Maybe you're just, you're wounded today. You're limping here today. Know that the Lord sees the state of your heart and mind. He wants to meet you where you're at and and bring healing and help and hope and encouragement and strength to you. I would encourage you today, if that's you, press in to Jesus. No one knew what it was like to be hurt by others more than Jesus did. And his heart is for us in these things. He has a way for us by his spirit 
because disagreements are going to come. It's going to happen. But I believe he wants to lead us in our disagreements in a way where those disagreements don't become a division or they definitely don't become a point of divisiveness. I'm going to have Nikki come back up. Guys, in closing, you know, if you today are in a place where some of this is actually a convicting word from the Lord for you, you know why he's convicting you? Because he loves you. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. The reason you're disciplined is because you're a child of God. If you weren't a child of God, he wouldn't discipline you. But he disciplines us, he chastises us, he, he corrects us and convicts us because unforgiveness and bitterness and divisiveness, those things rot us. They corrupt us. The Bible calls bitterness a root. It's a root of bitterness that defiles many. And if you've ever been around a bitter person, you know that it's defiled you in some way. Their bitterness never stays with them. It defiles you too. And your bitterness, if you have it, is not just affecting you, it's affecting those around you. Again, if that's you this morning, confess your sin to the Lord. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know what? There may be some forgiveness that's needed to be asked for from someone else or to, to be extended to someone else, even if they don't ask for it. Jesus doesn't say, forgive people if they ask for forgiveness. I say, forgive because your Father in heaven has forgiven you. And if you're wounded today, if you brought hurts to this place today, don't leave with those wounds. Don't leave with that baggage. Don't leave with those things staying upon your, your shoulders as sort of a huge weight. Bring those things to the Lord. I believe he wants to do a, a, a deeper relational work because a lot of relationships have been strained over the last year and a half. Many of you are dealing with that right now. Many of you, this morning, this message is, is hitting home because you're seeing how these things not handled in a Christ-like and Christ-honoring way have, have played out in your life or in the lives of others to bring destruction so if we're going to see things change when it comes to disagreements, if we're waiting for someone else to be the one that changes, we might have to wait a really long time. But what we can control is how we respond to the disagreement. I can't control how someone else responds, but I can control how I respond. You can control how you respond. And I want to pray for us today that the Lord really gives us a soft heart, or sort of a, a renewed perspective on people. The hard to love and the easy to love. Because the thing that Jesus was all about in his ministry was people. The thing that we're supposed to be about is people. And if we don't have the love of Christ for people, you and I are going to miss so much. So much. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord God, I think about those who are dealing with hurts this morning. Relationships, God, that are strained and divided people that have been wounded by the divisiveness of others. God, I, I pray for those this morning, Lord, who are dealing with hurts. They've been wounded, Lord. There's a scar that's been left. And God, I pray that you would heal those hurts, God, that you would bind up the brokenhearted. 
Lord, that you would bring encouragement and strength and hope and, and comfort. God, that you would uplift and uphold. God, those who are just needing a special touch from you this morning. God, those that, are, that have been wounded by others, God, would you guard their hearts? Lord, would you keep their hearts soft, Lord, even towards those who might be seen as an enemy, who used to be seen as a brother or a sister in Christ? God, would you, Lord, deal with any unforgiveness or bitterness, Lord, that might exist? Lord, relationships that you want to reconcile, God, would we not stand in the way of that reconciliation happening because, because of our own fragile egos, Lord, our own pride? God, would we be humble enough, Lord, to have our minds changed about other people? God, to let you, by your spirit, Lord, change our thoughts, change our perspectives. Lord, help us to not, Lord, deal with disagreements in a way that would dishonor you. But Lord, would we, Lord, handle disagreements in a Christ-honoring and Christ-like way. God, that we would make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Lord, that we would be those peacemakers. And God, that if division needs to take place after every other avenue has been explored, Lord, would we not be divisive in our division? God, would we not respond to other people's offensiveness by being offensive ourselves? God, that we would not rise up in pride and self-righteousness to other people's pride and self-righteousness. And God, this morning for those who, this was maybe more of a, a convicting and corrective word, God, would you let them know, Lord, that you love them and you want to do a work in them. God, would they confess their sins to you even now, even as I'm praying. Lord, bringing those things before you. Lord, not making excuses for their actions or their words any longer. But Lord, seeing it for what you see it, Lord, is sin. Sin to be confessed, Lord, sin to be repented of and to, to distance themselves from. And God, would you do a, a, a powerful work in their lives, God? And Lord, if there's anybody this morning who's joined us who doesn't have a personal saving relationship with you, I pray that even now, God, you would let them know that, Lord, you want to save them, you want to forgive them. God, that the, the break the separation that exists because of sin. Lord, you died to fix. Lord, you died to take that, that distance away. Lord, you died so that their sins could be forgiven and they could be made a child of God this morning. Lord, if there's anybody here in person or even online who doesn't have a saving knowledge of you, Lord, even now would you be impressing upon their own hearts, God, their need for you, Lord Jesus, that they would in their own hearts say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I, I, I want you to save me. Lord Jesus, forgive me and, and come into my life and be my savior and my Lord and my God. Make me right in the sight of God. Give me your righteousness, Jesus. Fill me with your spirit and seal me. And would you empower me to live for you? To, to say this morning, Jesus, I put my faith and trust in you. I believe you died on the cross and that you rose from the grave. Jesus, I believe in you. I just encourage you, if you did that this morning, the Bible says you will be saved. If you made that decision, the Bible says you have become a new creation in Christ Jesus, that all the old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. And Lord, as we respond to your word this morning, with songs of praise. God, would you, Lord, continue to work in our midst. Lord, continue to work on our hearts. God, be speaking to us. Be challenging us, Lord. Be growing us. That, Lord, more and more, we would become like Jesus. 
Lord, we need you. And this world around us needs us to be more like you too. And so Lord, lead us in these days. God, make us those witnesses. Lord, that we would be those not only who help strengthen the church and not dismantle it, strengthen the church, but also Lord, preach your life-transforming, life-saving gospel to the lost. <laughs> well, Lord, we love you. As we take these, the elements of communion, Lord, the bread and the juice, Lord, will we just remember what you've done? Lord, will we worship you, Lord, for who you are? We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.